take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32 this morning. Out of necessity, we're going to look at a number of other passages as well that uh, provide us some further understanding of what the whole counsel of God's Word is regarding the subject matter covered in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Before us is the issue of divorce and to some extent the question of remarriage after divorce. And I want to note at the beginning of our time together that I wish to speak quite directly to the subject of divorce and remarriage, hopefully taking all of the necessary care to do so in an unnecessarily, um, to, that I do not do so in an unnecessarily hurtful way. I was thinking uh, this morning, even this past week, if, if we were to just poll the congregations that gather here this morning, early in this service and the later service, uh, those who had been touched directly or indirectly by divorce, I doubt that there'd be anyone old enough to understand the concept of divorce that would be uh, untouched by its effect in their life, either parents' divorce or personal divorce or a sibling, someone that you care deeply for, maybe even a child for some of you in your stage of life. And this is just almost uh, commonplace in our society today. And so I, I want to put before you what the Bible says about these matters as best I can in the time that we have together. I, I, I tend to speak rather passionately about these issues. I, I hope that that is not perceived as um, hurtful or harmful in any way. That is certainly not the spirit uh, with which I come to you in today. But I, I, I think I, I feel as passionately about them as I do because I appreciate how deeply impactful they are. The second most, the second most impactful experience in my life, second only to coming to faith in Jesus, was the separation and the divorce of my parents. And for many of you, you, you could attest to the truth of that statement, and you've had similar experiences yourself. So while I, I want to hold forth compassion and gospel grace for those who have been the victims or victimized by divorce, who have been touched in a very painful way by this experience, I also want to speak with great conviction about what the Bible says about the danger that may be even before you this morning. So I want us to look together at these two verses in our reading, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. If you found your way there, I'd like to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Jesus says here, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Jesus does again in this paragraph what he's done in the two preceding paragraphs, and that he takes the Pharisees and scribes' understanding of a particular passage and then explains what's wrong with their understanding. Usually, their problem is that they have not carried the application of the principle far enough. 
They have taken a good, helpful, moral, virtuous law from God's word, and they have externalized it. In other words, they have turned it into something that they can easily do rather than the kind of command that speaks to who we are in our innermost. Their tendency is to make the law of God something that's easier for them to apply, easier for them personally to apply, while disregarding the spirit of the law altogether. Here, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. The experience of the Pharisees, the practice of the Pharisees was to say that divorce is not such a big issue. We can guard ourselves against committing the sin of adultery. We only need to make certain that we get the paperwork done properly. They're drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, which says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper, immoral, this is a reference to sexual immorality about her, he may write her a, certi a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, what that had turned into in the ear and the application of the Pharisee was, if she burns the beans, then I'll just write her a certificate of divorce, and we'll just send her on her merry way. There are still parts of the world today where divorce is as quick as, as verbalizing that one wishes the divorce to happen. Usually, that quick verbal divorce is used so that the individual issuing the decree, the verbal decree that the divorce has taken place, can moments later participate in some act of sexual deviance and believe himself to be released from the conviction or the guilt of sin that would have otherwise been attached to that. The Pharisees are making divorce about the legal paperwork, not the spiritual bond that exists between a husband and a wife. And what Jesus says here is that you can't just go around divorcing a woman or a husband for that matter so that you're able to liberate yourself from any potential guilt that might come from committing the sin of adultery addressed in the passage that we looked at last week. This is sort of a strange thing to need to note, but I'm convinced it needs to be noted. Jesus is not marginalizing or setting apart the legal dimensions of marriage. Y'all with me? Jesus is not saying that the paperwork doesn't matter. He's just saying that the paperwork does not liberate you from the responsibility to honor the bonds of marriage. What God has put together, Jesus says, let no man put asunder. This whole idea of separating ourselves from the, the, the legal dimension of marriage has gained popularity in recent years. Since the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court in same-sex marriage, Christians have more and more withdrawn from the legal dimension of marriage. But I want you to note that Jesus is not setting that aside. And that reality has a number of applications for us. Number one, it means for you young people that in the heat of the moment, there is no private marriage ceremony that puts you off the hook for your premarital sexual experiences. Y'all tracking with me? All right, all right. And number two, it means for you senior adults, there is no religious ceremony minus a legal component that would cost you your retirement benefits. <laughs> Y'all laugh at them young people if you want to. But all of the times that I've been approached with a request for one of these religious ceremonies minus the paperwork has always been the 60-plus crowd. 
and always with a concern for their financial stability after the I do's are done and the paperwork has been filed. Jesus is not saying the legal aspect of marriage is unimportant. He's simply saying that being legal does not mean being moral. Being legal in this case does not mean being right. The Bible clearly forbids, Jesus could not be clearer, that divorce without cause is a sin against God. And I would suggest to you this morning that divorce without cause is at the heart of the overwhelming majority of social issues that we face as a nation today. You could alleviate poverty. You could completely eradicate the foster care system. You could do away with so much of what ails our society if men and women in Western civilization would honor the command of God with regards to marriage and sexual intimacy within the confines of marriage. The Bible strictly forbids divorce without cause. God is on record in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 that God hates divorce. And I would join with God in that declaration this morning that I too hate divorce. That does not mean that God hates divorcees. People who have experienced divorce are not irreparably broken people. That does not mean that your pastor hates people that goes through divorce. I hate divorce because I hate what it does to the people that I love. And I hate what it does to you. I hate what divorce does to families. I hate what divorce does to precious little children who've contributed in no way to the divorce of their parents. I hate divorce every which way you could possibly hate divorce. I hate divorce, and God does too. Divorce without cause is a sin against God. God's design for marriage, God's design for marriage is for one man and one woman to remain together forever till death do us part. Amen. Now, Jesus notes here one of two what are referred to exception clauses in the New Testament with regards to divorce. Jesus says in verse 32, I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus makes exception here for the spouse that has committed adultery. If your spouse has committed adultery, Jesus says there is the exception an exceptional situation where you are permitted to pursue a divorce. I want you to note again that Jesus does not command that one get a divorce under these circumstances. In fact, we were looking at on Wednesday night in our Bible study, the prophet Hosea, the book of Hosea and the life of Hosea the prophet. In what I think may be one of the most powerful illustrations of God's great grace to us, God commands the prophet that he marry a promiscuous wife. His wife, Gomer, runs around on him, conceives three children that I believe to be children conceived outside of their marriage. I don't believe that those are Hosea's children. The text seems to indicate that they're the children of promiscuity, not Hosea's children, not his legitimate children anyway. 
She, she sells herself into prostitution. She not only runs around on Hosea, but she sells herself into prostitution. And in one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible, in Hosea chapter 3, Hosea goes and he pays the price and he buys her back 15 shekels of silver and a little barley. The Bible does not command divorce in the case of adultery. There's a second exception that of abandonment. The Bible allows for divorce in these two cases, adultery and abandonment, and out of necessity, I want us to go and to look at that other passage where this second exception is made in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you would just turn over there in your Bible. In 1 Corinthians 7, in the case of abandonment, divorce is permissible. 1 Corinthians 7 is, in my mind, running in a close contest with Ephesians 5 for those chapters in the Bible that are most critically important to a husband and a wife and a marriage being all that God intends that it would be. There's lots of great content here. In the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church regarding sexual intimacy within the bonds of marriage. He says in verse 5, do not deprive one another sexually except when you agree to for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. So the only reasonable reason that a husband and wife would cease from sexual intimacy is for an extended season of prayer together. Y'all tracking with me? I, I doubt that there are those kinds of seasons of prayer unfolding in many Christian homes today. Then he says, come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul indicates for us, and you need to hear this, Paul indicates for us that sexual intimacy is a critical component of the husband and wife relationship. Then in verses 8 and following, Paul says, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they don't have self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Those who, I believe Paul is describing here, having been married in the past but now divorced, and those who were married in the past but whose spouse has deceased, Paul says, if you can stay like I am, meaning single, then stay like I am. But if you don't have the ability to do that, then it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I, I don't know where, or I know where, but I don't know how in Christian history there came to be this notion in some quarters of traditional Christianity where celibacy was this thing to be heralded or celebrated. The, we, we are what we are made in the image of God. Now, there are rarely those who have what I've described as the gift of singleness, and it is a gift because it affords you the ability to do gospel advancing work without the constraints that come with needing to provide for a family, for a wife, and for children. It's an incredible thing. I've known and been close friends with a few people in my walk with Christ who had what I describe as the gift of singleness. But most of us don't have it. And if you don't have it, the Bible says it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, 
This teaching is continued in chapter 7, and virgins are brought in as a third category, and it's better for them to marry too than to burn with passion. Those are those who have never been married before. Paul says if there's an issue with self-control, and let me just tell you something, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, if you, if you have a college-age boy or girl, for that matter, if you have a high school-age boy or girl, there are issues with self-control. And it is better for them if they would marry than for them to burn with passion and to run the great risk of doing something that would compromise their standing with Jesus. The moral purity of your children, y'all moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, come in close. The moral purity of your children is of greater value than their academic, social, financial, or vocational success. Please do not say to me, young couple, engaged, excited, fired up, googly-eyed, and all dumb over each other. And I ask, what's the date? If you say to me, we're getting married in two years when I graduate college, I'm not going to respond to you very well at all. I'm going to do everything within my power to shame you and talk you into three months from now if that's what you respond to me with. Because it is more important that we be right with God than that we secure our financial stability before pressing into the future. Now, I know, listen, that doesn't mean that you can't do one without the other. Listen, I got all of that. And there's a place for self-control, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. But it is, in my estimation, an unrealistic expectation that a person of 25 or 30 years old without the gift of singleness is going to be able to bear with the degree of passion that Paul describes in this passage outside of marriage for extended periods of time. I'm not telling telling you what you've got to do. I'm just suggesting what wisdom would seem to dictate. So Paul says, for those who've never been married and for those who have been married but are now outside of a marriage because of divorce and for those who have been widowed, if you don't possess the gift of singleness, it is better for you that you would marry than to burn with passion. Look down to verse 25 of that same chapter. Paul says, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It's fine for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. In other words, when God saves you, even if you're in the most rotten of relationships, don't seek to be free. Don't seek to be loosed. God can make it right, can he? If God can save your wretched soul from sin, can he make right a rotten relationship? Now, it doesn't always come to pass. There are always two parties involved, and sometimes people just don't yield to the direction of God's Word and the work of his Holy Spirit. There's no denying that. But God has the power to restore the years the locusts have robbed from your marriage, to break the heart of the hardest of hearted men and women, to bring reconciliation where it seems as though reconciliation would be absolutely impossible. If you come into your walk with Christ with a knucklehead husband or a Jezebel wife, Paul says don't seek to be loosed. Remain, live as God has called you. 
That, that means don't, don't come and try to shoehorn your experience into the exceptions that the Bible gives us. I've counseled with a few wives through the years who would have been elated, who would have left their home clicking their heels if they could have caught their husband in adultery because they knew that that would remove them from the guilt of sin if they pursued divorce. They were so miserable in the relationship. That attitude is a sin, by the way. And then here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if there's an unbelieving spouse that simply will not live with the believing spouse, I've met folks who did everything they could to try to cram their life scenario into what Paul is describing in that passage. And I'll admit there are some difficulties because in the South where we live, everyone believes they're a believer, whether they really are a believer or not. They may act like a child of the devil, but they're convinced that because their name's on the roll of some obscure church somewhere, that they're a Christian walking with Jesus, somehow bound for heaven. There are complications that come with that reality. Paul says here, regardless of the nature of the relationship, seek the face of Christ and pray for restoration and reconciliation as much as is possible. Don't seek to be loose. Now listen to what he says next. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. In other words, what Paul is describing here are scenarios under which remarriage is permissible after divorce. The Bible allows for divorce in two cases, as we've described, adultery and abandonment. And then I want you to see the third principle in your outline is that the Bible permits remarriage for those who have been divorced under the circumstances described in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. There are always lots of questions. I'm sure there'll be questions that will remain unanswered even after the time that we spend together. And I'm sorry if those answers bear great consequence in your life. I'll try to make sure that I'm touching on what I feel to be the most critical of questions that arise from this discussion, sensitive to how personal these are for for many of you. I I, want to note again concerning divorce, even where there's an exception, that that has to be for you the nuclear option. That's always the language I choose to use. We've been in a war in Afghanistan and the Middle East for nearly 20 years now. We could exercise a nuclear option and turn the entire Eastern Hemisphere to glass if that's what we decided to do. But we choose not to exercise our weapons of warfare to that degree because of the consequences and the fallout that would come with that. That's kind of the way divorce operates. There are some of you here this morning who have experienced divorce and you simply had no other option. Regardless of the absence of other options, I think you would be the first to acknowledge that even the only option that remained on the table for you was an option that brought with it dreadful consequences. An option that was a painful experience for you, for your family, and potentially even for your children. Divorce is an option in these two exceptional cases, but it is an option that irreversibly comes with consequences. 
And you must never allow yourself to be convinced that somehow, some way, you and your spouse, no matter how friendly you may be at the divorce proceedings, are going to be able to subvert the dreadful consequences of divorce in your life or the lives of your children and the family around you. It's an option, but it had better be the nuclear option for you. In my counsel, the young couples especially, but even those of you who have been at it for 10, 20, 30 years, you need to remove the language of divorce from your vocabulary. If it's the kind of thing that you'll say in the heat of the moment in an argument, it will eventually create issues of distrust, and it will in all likelihood, for those of you who throw the language of divorce around, one day it's going to be an option that you exercise in your marriage. You pop off about divorce in the heat of the moment. He hears that, doesn't know whether to take it as a vain threat in the heat of the moment or to really begin to consider the reality that you may be thinking about that personally. He begins to respond in kind, threatening divorce himself, and she begins to have the same kinds of questions. And the next thing you know, the frustration that's borne out, the distrust created in that kind of environment lands the both of you in an attorney's office deciding who's going to get the kids on what weekend. You need to remove the language of divorce from your vocabulary as much as you possibly can. I, I, I have people come to me almost every time I preach on a passage like this and ask about scenarios, uh, marriages that began in adultery, marriages that began under ungodly or unbiblical circumstances. What do we now do? Well, what you do is you repent and you love the wife that God has given you. Or you repent and you love the husband that God has given you. There's no going back now. You'll make a bigger mess at this point than you would otherwise. And here's the beautiful thing about the grace of God. Often God is, is gracious in taking relationships like that and doing some of the most extraordinary things through them. I, I said to you a moment ago that one of the most painful experiences of my life, the second most impactful experience of my life, was the divorce of my, of my parents. But I got to tell you, even through that, God has done some extraordinary things in my life. We, we spent the day yesterday at the ball field with my father and my stepmother. And I just got to say to you this morning, step-parents aren't second-class parents. My, you know, one of the greatest dads in all of the Bible was a stepdad. Joseph raised the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't his. He wasn't bound legally to do that. And yet he provided for the needs that he had. So, so listen, I, want you to, I don't want you to be discouraged for those of you who may come to the realization, hey, we started under less than ideal circumstances. Live as you were called to Jesus. And because of the, the lack of health in the church, maybe you were even called to Jesus prior to making some of those decisions, but discipleship broke down and it was later in life you came to understand God's design for marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime and you're seeing things clearly now. There's, there's no turning back the hands of time. So you take what God has entrusted to you. And you trust him to bring about reconciliation and restoration. And you do all that you can with what God has placed in your hands to bring him great glory and honor with all of the life that remains before you. See it through and stay the course. Love the bride. Love the husband that God has granted you. 
I, I, I don't want you in any way, shape, form, or fashion to leave this morning under the impression that, that what Jesus describes here, or the heaviness of this message means that divorce marks you off for the rest of your life and you're broken, damaged goods somehow. That's not at all what the Bible describes. The Bible describes God constantly taking broken people under less than ideal circumstances and doing incredible things through them over the duration of their life. That's not at all the picture that is painted here. I warn you with this heaviness against divorce because God has given us the decree for our good, for our well-being. God is protecting us. This is for our good. There are certain sins that people seem to be able to practice while skirting the earthly consequence of their sin. Israel struggles with this in the Old Testament. We struggle with it a bit in Western civilization. We see some of the most sexually deviant, immoral people in our society become celebrities and be praised all over the world. And we try to walk faithfully with Jesus and are sitting at home eating bologna sandwiches. And we say, oh, Lord, why? There are people who are, who are thieves. They do it in white-collar ways, but they are robbing the world around them, the rich, oppressing the poor, skimming all the while. And they skate. They make it. They make it. They're wealthy. And we're home trying to honor Jesus. We struggle with those kind of things, don't we? But I got to tell you, when it comes to this, when it comes to adultery and divorce, I have yet to see a single man or woman who was able to skirt even the earthly consequences of these decisions. And I got to warn you today, you won't be the exception either. You won't. You won't. You won't. I used to worry more about those couples that came to me for premarital counseling who came from homes of divorce. Now I almost worry about those who come from nuclear families more than I do the ones who are the product of divorced families. One, it's a rarity to have a couple, both of which coming from a nuclear family. But the concern is that they've not felt the full weight the gravity of divorce, its heaviness, how deeply impactful it is. They don't know how to accurately count the cost of divorce if they were to exercise that option at some point in their relationship. I'm just warning you, it has cataclysmic consequences in the lives of your children for generations, for generations, for generations. I, I don't know why, but children of divorce always feel as though it's their fault. If you're here as a single mom or a single dad and you have children that are the product of that relationship now ended in divorce, it would be a wise thing for you to hug them closely daily and to remind them that what has happened to mom and dad is not their fault. They need to hear it. And you ought to be willing to say it. You will not skirt the consequences of this sin. You will not. You will not. You will not. And I'll say to you again what I said to you last week with regards to the sin of adultery. Let those of you who think you stand take heed lest you 
fall. Love your wife well. Love your husband well. And, I, and I'll just say to you, I think the best thing that you can do to love your kids is to love your wife more than you love the kids. The best thing you can do, moms, the best thing you can do, moms, especially those of you with little ones. My wife's in the service, by the way. <laughs> the best thing you can do to love your husband is to love your husband more than you love those children. The best thing you can give your kids is a mom and dad that love one another and love Jesus Christ. Some of you are skeptical, I'm sure, because you, if you had a Sunday morning like a lot of Sunday mornings in a lot of Christian homes I know of, things didn't go well, and uh, you'd like to kill him or her, but you have to have your Sunday face on right now, <laughs> had to get the kids to connect and all the other things that come with Sunday morning. And some of you just kind of came in, maybe even came in as unbelievers or, or half of the marriage is unbelieving. If, if, you, if you believe that there was a moment in time in history when the dead body of Jesus lie in a cold garden grave sealed by a great stone, when God allowed that the stone would be rolled away, and the lifeless body of Jesus would begin to breathe again. If you believe in that kind of resurrection power, you must believe in resurrection power for your relationship. If you believe that God can make us by faith in his son, dead in our sins and trespasses, but alive in Christ Jesus, you must believe in that kind of resurrection power for your relationship. For many of you, this is nothing more than a signpost for you to go home today and to get your act together, mm -hmm. to pull together as a husband and wife and be warned at the dreadful consequences that may be just out on the horizon if repentance is not experienced for you and for her or for him, whatever the case might be. I hope that this sermon serves to be for us as a body a milestone moment we're able to look back on and note that that day I thought soberly about the relationship that God had granted me, the marriage that God had given me, and we resolved together as a family to see to it that come what may, what God had put together, no man would put asunder.